0: Our text that we're going to spend some time in this afternoon is Mark chapter 15. I'd like to just open by reading the passage. I'd like to read the first 20 verses together with us. So if you have a Bible, a device, otherwise the text should be up on the monitor. So follow along. We'll read the text. I'll pray. And then we'll, we'll charge in with what I believe the Lord has for us with this text in our hearts this afternoon. Mark chapter 15. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy That the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the King of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted All the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak And twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Father in heaven, give Wisdom, both to preach and to hear from this text, from this difficult, painful ordeal that took place in history. Help us to see, Lord, give us eyes to see what the Spirit has to say, encourage, strengthen our hearts, convict us, draw us near, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We are nearing the end of our study through the... Gospel of Mark, it's been about a year and a half that we've been in the Gospel of Mark. I just read chapter 15. There's 16 chapters, Lord willing. I think that we've got scheduled two more messages to finish this series. We've been going through this Gospel, and when we get towards the end, the last week of Jesus, things slow down quite a bit. We move through three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, and it really was. Uh, fantastic, Uh, three and a half years of extraordinary miracles, massive healing campaigns, profound teachings, Mark has really laid out a convincing case, and this was his aim, who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And after he spent so many chapters laying out all these things about Jesus, all the miracles that he did, all the profound teachings they did, all the kindnesses and the wisdom and all the things that Jesus practiced... It's quite a case. You should know Jesus, and you should follow him. In the last week, the last days of Jesus' life, things turn a corner. Jesus is having a bad week. Everything's going wrong all of a sudden. The current changes, and it seems like everything that happens is sad and bad and painful and difficult and disillusioning, began as we spoke a couple weeks about Jesus praying, agonizing with God in the garden, wrestling with God about the implications of the next step, his death, wrestling in his his own soul, is this really the only way? Do I really have to do this? And he goes through this agonizing night of prayer with the Father and comes through, and immediately when he gets up, We talked a week ago about extreme sorrows of being betrayed and the arrest, the overkill arrest, all kinds of soldiers coming to take him when there was no resistance there, his closest friends betraying him, and Jesus is undergoing this deep sorrow. And now this afternoon, a few verses about his trial and the conviction that came out of that trial. And in this section, Mark shows us an exaggerated sense of hatred towards Jesus. They despised him. We see a few expressions here where it's labeled, the chief priest, Pilate, the soldiers. They hated him. They treated him terribly, terribly unjustly. And you have to ask the question, why was Jesus so hated? What, what, what could possibly produce this? If you and I were to sit and just read through the Gospel of Mark, our year-and-a-half study, starting at the beginning, you read through over and over again, week after week, chapter after chapter, paragraph after paragraph, telling us who Jesus is. Who could read that and get to the end and say, well, there it is, now I hate Jesus. How could you possibly come to that conclusion? In fact, to whatever extent, you and I can be objective. If you were to open up the gospel according to Mark and read it, you'd have to be convinced. Long before you got to chapter 15, I love this guy. He's the son of God. I should surrender to him. He should have my life. I would have no greater pleasure than to yield myself to him. How could you come to any other conclusion except that after reading What you read after getting exposed to the truth about who he was and what he did, how he treated people. How could anyone come to the conclusion, and now I hate Jesus? The answer that the Bible gives us is that the hatred already exists in the hearts of the haters, not the hated. Even more so, the Scriptures tell us that the hatred is actually a product of a greater love. John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And now you have a theological explanation as to why Jesus was so Hated. In our text, Mark lays out for us three examples of extreme hatred toward Jesus. And it helps us to see. it. He includes statements and comments that put the finger on the sins in the heart that produce, that grow into a hatred for Christ. We found out that the chief priests were driven By envy, we find out that Pilate was motivated by people pleasing and that the Roman soldiers were scoffers. It's unlikely that somebody in the room right now would say, I hate Jesus. It's possible, unlikely. it's also unlikely that any one of us in the room is not dealing very closely with envy people pleasing and scoffing i want to make the case that these three sins in particular lead to hating jesus and you're going to get your back up with me right now and say no wait a minute These are common sins that we all experience. And I don't feel any animosity towards Jesus, even though I struggle with envy and people-pleasing and maybe a little scoffing now and again. I want to make this point. These sins, and in fact all sins, if left to themselves, will grow up into and bring you to a place where you will have to hate Jesus. The point is, the closer Jesus gets to you, the more these things come to the surface in our lives. And if you're not willing to let them go, if you're not willing to own up, see them, confess them for what they are, surrender these things to the Lord, they will grow up and force you, put you in a position closer you get to Jesus and one day you'll have to face him and if these things remain in our hearts and grow to their fullness we too like the characters in our story here will end up hating Jesus all sin leads to hating Jesus but friends the good news is the power of sin is broken in the cross The warning is that these common sins have a very dangerous trajectory mark in chapter 15 the first 20 verses gives us both the seed and the tree the beginning and the end of a few common sins that we all wrestle with that we all deal with and if we hold on to them refuse to let them go They will result in leading us down a path to the point where we will, too, despise Jesus. It's a shocking tale of just how deadly sin actually is and how desperate our need is. The good news is throughout this whole account, Jesus is completely aware of all this, knows this, knows this about them knows about their need, knows about the trajectory of these sins. He is there bearing their hatred and doesn't miss a step, making his way to the cross, the place where a death blow can be dealt to the sins that are now coming against him and surrounding him. So let's look at each. First point, we had the envy of the chief priest. We know over the weeks and months that we've been doing this the the religious leaders the chief priests let's just make a category here the Sanhedrin scribes chief priest they had this sort of growing conflict with Jesus throughout his ministry and early on back in chapter 8 verse 31 Jesus predicted that it was going to blow up one day the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders And the chief priest, he predicted this. He saw it coming, knew it was going to come. It was necessary that it came. And when Jesus came into this festival, and on that first day, as we know of, cleansed the temple, that's when it really began to take hold. It was at that moment, it says, and they sought to kill him. Jesus kept getting closer and closer, and their hearts came up and up up to the surface, to the point where if Jesus got so close, there was only one solution. Jesus had to die. They could see that they were being displaced by Jesus. These guys, you can imagine, this is our turf. We're the religious leaders. We're the answer men. We're the people you come to. We're the counselors. We're the Bible scholars. We're the answer givers. We're the spokesmen for God. We want everybody's respect. We want people to come to us. And here comes Jesus. And all of a sudden, the crowds are going there. And he's different from them. And they recognize it. And the chief priests recognize it. And we see envy. Oddly enough, it was Pilate that identified it, which just goes to show you you don't have to be a godly person to discern sin. You don't have to be a noble person to pick it out. This is the funny thing about sin. And if you're a parent with young children, you know this frustration. You don't have to be mature to label sin, to identify. Kids can identify parents' hypocrisy just as easy as anybody. It's easy to stand on the outside. And here is Pilate, no hero in the story. And yet he's presented with this case. He's saying, here I've got a guy who's completely innocent. I have no proof against him. And yet, these guys are so adamantly determined to kill him. He smells something. Something's up. I see what's going on. Old thing called envy. He perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. The sin of envy. The very beginning of the Bible, immediately after things go wrong in the Garden of Eden, the very next episode, Genesis chapter 4, the first time the Bible uses the word sin, we have a flare-up of envy that ends in murder, the story of Cain and Abel. i read you a little bit from one of my favorite books. Cornelius Planting is Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. The book group's going through it now. I jumped ahead a little bit, a little bit about envy. First, he'll just give you a little synopsis of the Cain and Abel account from the scriptures. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel, And his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. It's desirous for you. You must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out into the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Plantinga goes on to comment, In this terse and cryptic story, the crime is murder and the motive is envy. Something has gone wrong with Cain's worship of God. It it hadn't worked. It didn't take. And Cain had gotten angry, not puzzled. He had gotten angry, not humbled. Cain had set himself against a mysterious God, an inscrutable God who was such a finicky eater that he wouldn't even touch his vegetables. But then somewhere between the lines of the story so quietly... So subtly, we can hardly see it happen, Cain's anger pivots. He had hated the God who was so hard to satisfy, but then in his anger, Cain slowly swivels around until he has Abel in his sights. After all, who turned God against him? Who seems to win at everything? Who keeps putting him in the shade? Cain looks over at Abel and no longer sees his brother. All he sees now is a rival. Not somebody to love and lift up, but somebody who needs to be cut down to size. Who does Abel think he is? Where does he get off? Why does he always make people feel like losers? A poisonous little fire is eating Cain's innards. And his terrible conclusion is that only his brother's blood can put it out. Envy often begins with some kind of covetousness, but it's so much more. Covetousness wants what somebody else has. Envy resents the one who has it. The envier needs to spoil something, destroy something out of resentment. What? Seemed to begin with Cain wanting God's blessing. Ended with him no longer concerned about God's blessing. Now he was just fixated on Abel's death. The envier finds himself compelled to vandalize something or someone. This was the chief priests. This is what happened. This is what they had in their hearts, which it grew and it result and they pivoted and now Jesus was in their sights when the light of jesus got too close came near to them the darkness of their hearts came out envy was in their hearts envy drove them toward this hatred convinced them that there was only one remedy guilty or innocent doesn't matter anymore proof against him doesn't matter anymore this man must die we have only one solution to the problem here Jesus has to go. We hate him. All the while, Jesus knew that his destruction actually was the remedy for what was wrong in their hearts. Secondly, we have the people-pleasing of Pilate. Pilate and the Jews. Pilate was the Roman authority, and he was the one that could lawfully Sentenced someone to death the Jewish leaders were limited in that they didn't have the civil authority to sentence someone to death so they sent Jesus to Pilate because he was the one who could Pilate has an interesting history with the Jewish people when you start gathering up the history what we have what we can find both in the scriptures and beyond It seems like there were three major occasions of problems between Pilate and the Jewish people. Pilate did things to greatly offend these people. He did some terrible things, and when he would do something bad for them, they would rise up, they would protest, they would gather around his his castle, his palace, and they would pick it, and they would hold up signs, and they would cause a problem. And so then Pilate had to figure out, how am I going to respond to this? And two out of three times, it was basically just send the soldiers and slaughter them. That was the kind of guy he was. Just shoot them, just kill him. Simple solution. He was a brutal man. But he was not incompetent in figuring out how to work things to his own advantage. Now, Pilate has Jesus brought to him. and Pilate realizes early on he has an innocent man in front of him, that he's being told to charge and sentence to death. Now, Mark tells us very little about Pilate. Pilate's an interesting guy, and it's well worth reading the other gospel writers about Pilate because there's a lot of interesting Stuff that the other writers add, but Mark is being fairly fairly sparse here. Matthew tells us a story about Pilate's wife having a dream, warning him, Don't get involved in this one. Also about Pilate's dramatic hand washing, saying, I'm washing my hands of this man's blood, and turning that responsibility back over to the Jews. Luke writes about Pilate inherit now uh, this newly formed friendship that Jesus sort of brings these two bad guys together and they start this strange friendship. John tells us about a phrase when the crowd shouted out, Any friend of Jesus is no friend of Caesar. That seems to be the tipping point for Pilate. His political reputation all of a sudden got pulled in. Mark just tells us plainly. Pilate wished to satisfy the crowd. Pilate, the great politician, figured out how to play this one out. And this time, in his judgment, the solution was satisfy the crowd. People pleasing. Know that people pleasing is not the same thing as pleasing people. It's good to please people. It's good to do nice things for people. It's good to care about people, serve people, be kind to people. But people-pleasing is a biblical category that is really not about being kind to people. It's about using people. It's about feeling compelled to do what people want because you want something from them or you're afraid of something about them. And so now... Your perception of them, your fear of them causes a desire, an inordinate desire, a sinful desire to please them in order to avoid something you don't want or to gain something that you do want. It's a heart that's motivated to please others for selfish reasons. And this will always in time lead us down a path Where we will have to result in hating Christ. Notice how Pilate's decision had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus, only his own heart. When that darkness of needing to please others is in our hearts, there's no room for the light of Jesus to come in. He will need to be cast aside, he will need to be ignored. He will need to be condemned. He will need to be hated in order for us to please the crowd. If pleasing people holds the sort of throne room of your heart, influences your life, dictates your actions and your words, then there's no room for this Jesus to sit in that seat. You are stuck, you are, you are bound, you are crippled, you are handcuffed to having to please others. People-pleasing, fear of man are two sides of the same coin. They're really talking about the same sinful tendency that you and I all wrestle with from time to time. I'm compelled to please you because I'm afraid of something. I'm compelled to please you because I want something from you. Could I pull out and just ask you a few self-evaluation questions? I'm assuming there's not a person in the room that does not struggle to some extent with people-pleasing and the fear of man. Does peer pressure, what I think others will think, play a significant role in your decision-making are you often overcommitted? often inclined to say yes when it's unwise or afraid to say no because it might displease someone do you experience an unusual need for praise from others or are you often crushed by criticism or even just honest feedback in your life is it too much to bear that somebody has some input for you or even a sinful criticism. Does it crush you? Is it too much to bear? Do you often find yourself automatically apologizing almost before you even think about what you're apologizing for? Is it your kind of gloss over, cover up? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Can we just shut down the conversation because I'm sorry? You don't need to say anymore. I don't want to hear anymore. I'm sorry. How effective is your desire to avoid conflict? Okay, I'm assuming every one of us would like to avoid conflict to some extent. There might might be one or two of you that's like just loves it. (laughs) Give me a conflict any day, I'll take it. You are the exception. Most of us, to one degree or another, would opt any day of the week out of conflict, not into it but the question is this how effective is that desire in your life is it so effective that when a conversation is necessary your desire to avoid conflict wins the day makes the decision is the deciding factor sits on the throne has the place of jesus in your heart mark wrote his gospel in order for us to know who jesus is and to know what it means to follow him but we will never know him nor will we ever follow him rightly if our hearts are stuck on pleasing others you cannot fully recognize who jesus is You cannot rightly surrender yourself to him and follow him if in your heart resides this thing that is unshakable and you're so committed to that we have to please others. Christianity doesn't grow in that kind of ground, in that kind of heart. Jesus cannot have the rightful place in our hearts if the crowd is already sitting there. Fear of man, the Bible says, is a snare. And that describes the reality of this sin. We are ensnared. We are held captive. We are caught in a trap. We are not free. This is what led to Jesus' death. And it was only his death that can set us free from it. Thirdly, we have the scoffing soldiers. When you think about the story and who's going on here, you realize Mark should not have to mention the soldiers. They really shouldn't even come into play in this story. These were merely men that were sworn to carry out orders of superiors. So Pilate is the civil authority. When Pilate gives the order, he's condemned, he's guilty, crucify him. The Roman soldiers are there to simply carry it out, just do their duty to go from civilian to soldier is involving a transfer of identity you do what you're told to do when you join the service you eat when they tell you to eat you sleep when they tell you to sleep you do what they tell you to do nobody's asking your opinion nobody cares about your stupid personality nobody's wondering how you feel about it nobody wants to have discussion about it they're just saying look you're a soldier now your old identity gone don't care who you are This is who you are now. Do your duty. Do what you're told. Follow the instructions. You would think Pilate would just say, it's done. The soldiers would just simply do their duty. They could have done it reluctantly. They could have done it sorrowfully. They could have done it regrettably. But instead, they did it mockingly. They scoffed at Jesus. They mocked Jesus. They made fun of Jesus. One more display of hatred toward Jesus. The fake purple robe to impersonate a king. The crown of thorns to mockingly contrast a crown of gold. They mockingly bow down, stand up, salute, hail, king of the Jews, Beating his head with sticks, mockingly bowing down before him, all to say mockingly, scoffingly, You are anything but a king. The Bible talks to us about the scoffer, the Bible talks in terms of right and wrong good and evil, but there's a third category that's similar about wise and foolish. The book of Proverbs is a wonderful place that lays this out, the distinction between the fool and the wise person. In Proverbs, the fool is someone who is dull and obstinate, but as Derek Kittner writes, it must always be remembered that the book, Proverbs, has in mind a man's chosen outlook rather than his mental equipment. So when he says they're dull, it, he's not saying you don't have the intellectual capacity. He said it has nothing to do with your intellectual equipment. It has to do with the posture of your heart, your chosen outlook in life. That's what makes you The fool, the root of his trouble, is spiritual, not mental. He likes his folly and has no reverence for the truth, preferring comfortable illusions. The fool is typically stubborn, quarrelsome, lacks restraint, has no sense of proportion. Like Abigail's husband, Nabal, the fool, in 1 Samuel 25, she said, no one can talk to him. There's no talking to him. He's a fool. Talk all you want. There's no talking to him. He's obstinate. He's dull. He can't hear you. He's stuck in his own illusion. The scoffer is a subheading of the fool. He's the one who makes fun of, who belittles, who always has a put-down. Not too dissimilar from envy there's always a heart that wants to bring someone down there's a particular personal kind of hatred that works to belittle and to defame in a mocking way now the real danger of scoffing proverbs enlightens us about how dull and obstinate and stupid the scoffer is but also how dangerous and how destructive the scoffer is Proverbs 22:10 Drive out the scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. In other words, the man is not just dull and obstinate and difficult, he's a problem. He causes trouble. It causes destruction. Drive him out and strife will go out. Here's the thing. we got Roman soldiers. You and I could go hang around in the barracks of the Roman soldiers. We could listen to all the guy talk, locker room talk, all the crass joking, all the ribbing, all the whatever, and all the distasteful whatever is going on in the barracks, and most of us would walk through and just think, it's no big deal. It is what it is. That's what guy soldiers do, right, when they get alone in the barracks, crass talk, Dirty jokes, what, what, whatever, whatever. You don't think much of it, but, but here's here's my point. When that's in your heart, and Jesus starts getting close, when the light comes, and it presses on the darkness, and all of a sudden the reality of the heart comes up to the surface, and what might. Seemed like meaningless joking in the locker room. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus is there. And this unique kind of hatred comes out. These guys loved the darkness. So when put in the position of doing their duty of crucifying Jesus, they had to mock him. They had to despise him. I had to make fun of him. Amazingly, just across the page in your Bible, one of them has a change of heart. Beautiful story of redemption. Jesus dies, breathes his last, and one of these Roman soldiers was standing right there, and all of a sudden it dawns on him, and he says, surely, this man was the Son of God. He saw it. Power of the gospel hit him. Scoffing is destructive, but there is hope even for the scoffer. Okay, in conclusion, I know these are common sins and maybe you think I'm a little far-fetched to say and you too will hate Jesus if you allow these sins to continue in your life these are sins like all sins that have disastrous results a little envy a little people pleasing a little scoffing now and then something different too close to Jesus, the reality of these things come up. A paragraph from wonderful Dutch theologian Burkhauer writing about sin. He says, we're inclined to minimize the biblical witness concerning the truly alarming character of our sin. We then fancy our sin as deficiency or lack or hiatus or mistake or as something to be regretted, but sin is not disaster or catastrophe. Sin is no longer a disconcerting and ominous snare to be resisted by putting on the whole armor of God. It's not a damning power which holds our lives in peril. It's rather defined by a number of circumstances. And is always not yet in contrast to what will be later. Therefore, if we give enough time, the restriction of our present circumstances will be lifted away. Obviously, that standpoint is congenial to the notion that sin does not affect or, or pollute the deepest being of a man. It only impinges on the periphery of our living. Let me just pause here. Is that how we think about the little bit of envy and people-pleasing and scoffing going on in our hearts? Well, yeah, this is, this is a problem. It's impinging on the fringes of my lifestyle. Bergauer goes on, sin does not break down the harmony of life. Man retains his intrinsic powers to resist and distort. He's saying we don't understand the disastrous realities of these sins in our lives. We don't take them seriously enough. We think we're in far more control than we are. And all of a sudden, these Roman soldiers find themselves... Think about the irony of this. The one who created the universe, who spoke it all into being. The one who has full authority over all things, who talks to wind and waves, heals diseases. Demons flee From him has all this authority. And here are these soldiers mocking and ridiculing this man. Joking with him as if he really is some kind of king when he really is the only king of all kings. Here's Pilate completely unaware. He's got the son of God standing in front of him. Not just an innocent man. No, (laughs) The righteous man. And he's so distracted with pleasing the crowd, he says, go ahead then. Just go ahead and crucify him. And the chief priests, the spiritual leaders of all the Jews who should have seen this, known this, these guys were trained, schooled to recognize the Messiah, and they ended up, because of envy in their heart, his worst enemy that had to have him When Jesus gets too close, our hearts get exposed, and things in our hearts get revealed, and we begin to see, and that scenario is difficult. It's it's difficult when light, when righteousness comes into my life, and what's not right in my heart gets exposed, and that scenario just to that point in and of itself could lead a person to think that Jesus came into the world to condemn the world. The light shining in my life makes me feel condemned. I get too close to Jesus initially. It feels like I'm being condemned. The light is exposing something and there's a There's a pain, there's a struggle, and there's a resistance there. And you could, at this moment, be inclined to come to the conclusion, I guess Jesus came into the world to condemn us, to show us what was wrong with us, to tell us how bad we are. But that conclusion would be entirely wrong. And I have just one word to say to contrast that. Barabbas, Barabbas, there's one more guy in the story. There's one more guy in the account, the prisoner, the guilty man, the one who was already tried and already condemned, the murderer, the insurrectionist who was in prison and destined to be crucified. The one person everyone already knew was a criminal. And now we have the entire gospel, the entire Bible played out in this little scenario of these two men, two men, one guilty, the other innocent. One will die, the other will go free. Who will it be? The one who was clearly guilty gets released. The one who was clearly innocent goes to die. And now we have the reality of why Jesus came. The innocent one accepts the condemnation and goes to the cross while the guilty man walks free the worship team can come on up john 3 17 for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is the warning our sins are deadly, they're destructive. They will lead us to one day have to either yield our hearts to Jesus or we will be stuck hating Jesus. The call is to repentance. The call is to be amazed at God's grace. This is why Jesus died. This is why he withstood all the hatred, all the sorrow, all the agony, and walked all the way to the cross and drank that cup so that you and I could be free. Let's stand. Sing. What reason have I?